Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined again, once again, with Ian Clary, who has a different look today. If you're on video, you will see it. Uh, he has also lost 10 years of age. <laughs> he started taking collagen pills, and now he has become a youth again. It's, it's an amazing thing that happens with modern science. And we're here to... <laughs> I'm drinking <laughs> my bulletproof coffee with all the collagen I need yes, in it. Yes, so. bulletproof coffee is the thing that is the elixir of life. We know that now. Um, and we're, we're kind of doing a double reading episode. We're going to do uh, uh, book two, chapters 11 to uh, 15 of John Calvin. Of course, we can't cover everything. So we're just going to highlight a few interesting things to help you as you read John Calvin. Our goal, just to kind of reiterate, is to get you reading works of theology that are significant in the history of the church to help you to know God and to enjoy him and his creation. So we're not going to cover every detail, but we want to kind of point you to some cool places. And as we get going, Ian is going to kind of open us up by introducing, I think, and reading to us a passage from, from Kelvin. Cool. I thought you were going to mention uh, that I'm down in my storage room of a, of a study here where the lighting is absolutely hideous, so I look <laughs> pale and washed out, so I don't know if collagen's doing anything for me. You also didn't notice that I got my cool, legit Calvin, Calvin, real Calvin and, and Hobbes, Hobbes uh, t-shirt, and uh, I'm lecturing on Hobbes later today at CCU, and uh, yeah, this works, you know. Okay, so um, let's get kind of get into things here. Um, so we, in the last uh, discussion, we were working through um, the relationship between law and gospel, the Old and New Testaments. We saw how uh, Calvin, in, in that discussion, kind of draws a link between them, um, notes a lot of commonalities. Um, the, the big one that, that we're going to kind of get into more in this reading is how Christ is the mediator of both covenants. Um, but so as to be careful that he's not, um, you know, flattening out any kind of distinctions between the two Testaments. Um, in number 11, he starts uh, by articulating five different ways uh, that he sees that there are differences between the two. And then he kind of gives us a summary statement right at the end of, uh, of section four. So if you're reading in the big two-volume institutes, that's on page 454. So I just thought I'd start with that and we could just look really quickly at... Um, some of those distinctions mm -hmm. and, and then move on to the mediator and, and the other parts of the reading. So if you're looking in that last paragraph before number five, uh, right, kind of maybe like a third of the way down, you see the word or words, or if you prefer. So I'm just going to start there. Um, so he's, he's just kind of talked about how um, the uh, uh, there's this kind of like, uh, he says, well, I should just start from the beginning of that paragraph. He says, but not, because nothing substantial underlies this, Unless we go beyond it, the apostle contends that it ought to be terminated and abrogated to give place to Christ, the sponsor, the mediator of a better covenant, uh, whereby he imparts eternal sanctifications once and for all to the elect, blotting out their transgressions, which remained under the law. And then he gives this statement. Um, he says, or if you prefer, understand it thus. The Old Testament of the Lord was that covenant wrapped up in the shadowy and ineffectual observance of, status, of ceremonies and delivered to the Jews. It was temporary because it remained, as it were, in suspense until it might rest upon a firm and substantial confirmation. It became new and eternal only after it was consecrated and established by the blood of Christ. Hence Christ in the supper calls the cup that he gives to his disciples the cup of the New Testament in my blood. By this he means that the testament of God attained its truth when sealed by his blood and thereby becomes new and eternal. So he's locating the, the, the ground of difference between the Old and the New Testaments mm. and the fact that the Old is this, this shadow, as we would say, the New is the substance. And the reason that the New is the substance is because of um, the, uh, the, the shed blood of 
of Christ, which which mm. gets rid of all of the the shadows, uh, the ceremonies, and uh, and makes the reality of what salvation looks like real. So that's kind of his his way of of kind of delineating between the two. And I, I obviously think he's entirely right here. So. Well, what strikes me is I mean, he's mentioned things similarly earlier that if, if you just look at the, the sacrifices by themselves, it's, it's kind of absurd. Like they're just sacrifices. Mm. If you see them, I can't remember his language, but if you see them kind of like as types or shadows of what is to come, then they take on kind of a greater and deeper spiritual significance. <clears throat> and it's, it's similar here where he's saying, look, it's a temporary shadow. It doesn't have an effect. It doesn't, I think, truly forgive sins. But what it does do is prepare it. It cast uh, it's a, it's a waiting or anticipatory of the substance, which yep. is Christ. By the way, does he think Paul wrote Hebrews? <laughs> Just notice that. Yeah, the where because it's it, yeah, it's funny. He does say that. Yeah, he does. And uh, but it, it's I I I was kind of paying attention to that in the back of my mind as I was reading. He never. I haven't yet hear him come out and say it per se in terms mm. of Paul's first name. But yeah, it's implied. No, he does believe that. If I, I have my Hebrews, Calvin Hebrews commentary upstairs. Okay. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that if you look at the title of it, um, we, could, we could confirm that later. But um, yeah, he's, I, I like one of the things that he does is he kind of links this. Um, he's answering, uh, I can't remember the charge. I think it was uh, of, of Vedas. The idea that God, um, there's this challenge that because, because God's supposed to be immutable, he can't change these two covenants. And, uh, and so Calvin gets a little Aristotelian, um, four, 453, 454, where he says, no, the substance of the covenant is kind of the same. It just has accidental properties that can change. And God oh. can do that, obviously, um, which I thought was kind of neat, um, where he, he makes that sort of the, the substance accident distinction. Like right at the top of 454, um, he says, here are, we are to observe how the covenant of the law compares with the covenant of the gospel, the ministry of Christ with that of Moses. For if the comparison had reference to the substance of the promises, there'd be great disagreement between the Testaments. But since the trend of the argument leads us in another direction, we must follow it to find the truth. Uh, I don't remember where the, oh, and then you go down, he says, now these were only the accidental properties of the covenant or additions and appendages and in common parlance, accessories of it. Uh, he's talking about the things, the symbols, the ceremonies of Moses. Wow. Yeah, but yet because, because they are means of administrating it, they bear the same covenant just as is customary in the case of other sacraments. Wow. I, I, I always find that so helpful. Man, it's like more and more and more. I'm like, I can't believe how helpful Aristotelian's plastic categories are. We get into these debates over dispensationalism, covenant theology, the relationship of the covenants. I think if we all had those categories down, um, we'd find yeah. that a lot more helpful. You know, and It might be worth just noting, when you talk about Aristotelian categories, all you're saying is it's language to describe things as they are. Hmm. You're saying... You can talk about a ball. If it's red or blue, those are accidental properties, but it's always a ball. Yeah, so it's just, it's just a, helpful language to distinguish what's true. And so you're not saying, and I, I know that you know this. I'm just making the point because some people hear yeah. that and they're like, why would I need to read Aristotle? Well, you don't need to read him per se. You just need to know how to use words to describe things that are true. Yeah. Just like you need to learn what the word gravity is to describe why something falls. It's not because gravity is some mystical special thing. It's just a word to describe what it is. Yeah. We think about it. It's like Aristotle, you know, he's before Christ and uh, those categories, those category distinctions that he makes on those sorts of things, act and potency, <laughs> substance and accidents, whatever. Um, those have been around. I mean, those were in common use up until like what the 18th century, right. you know? Um, 
why would we just abandon them? And what was the cause of abandoning them? Well, it was the rise of like a modern philosophy and a modern science that got rid of Aristotle. Well, well there's right? no cause. So, it just sort of happened. You could yeah. Bye-bye <laughs> final cause. Maybe you yeah. can have some vision causality, but no final cause. It's like, uh, why did we just do that? And why, why for us when we're doing theology and philosophy as Christians, are we buying into that whole thing? Why can't we go back to the tradition if it was so useful for thousands of yeah. years? <laughs> Anybody who says they're not they're not following Aristotle to avoid tradition is creating a new one by necessity because there's no other words to describe what it is. I mean, yeah. if you want to describe why something occurs or why a ball can be a ball with different colors, you have to somehow say it. So how do you say it? Well, you create a new tradition. Yeah. And so really, if we just kind of step back and think Aristotle is just describing things as they are, and a lot of it's useful, maybe not all of it, but a lot of it's quite useful. It's just words to help us yeah. talk about truth. Um, Let's kind of push through a few places just for the sake of um, not getting lost in the weeds here. Well, let yep. me ask you a question before we move on, because this will be relevant. I think we have to get into a little bit of a weed. Um, how do you think Calvin would answer this question uh -oh. on the basis of the passage you read in context? <clears throat> Should we read New Testament truths backwards into the Old Testament? Um, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you, honestly, off the top of my head what he would say. That's how I kind of tend to read things, um, you know, that like I, I read, I want to read my old with my New Testament glasses on. Um, but that's also one of those things that I've just kind of like assumed is true for like the last 15 years. And so I don't know, maybe, maybe that needs to be challenged. Why? What are you thinking? I'm just curious. I think that's a debate that people have is, is how, to, how to keep the Old Testament in integral in its meaning, but also to realize that Christ has come and he's the substance. Yeah. You know, it's the accidents of change on the substance. Um, Calvin at one point is going to say, what is the image of God in Genesis? And he'll say, Colossians 1 says it's Jesus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, that's the image of God. Now, he's, he has, I think he would have more to say on that. But I think Calvin's very comfortable using the New Testament or the whole Bible to interpret the whole Bible. So yeah. if Genesis needs clarification. You can go anywhere, but you can also go to John and you can also go to Colossians or whatever. So... I'm not sure his exact uh, idea. I think you're right on that. I think based on what Kelvin says here, why would I read shadow as shadow? Yeah. I just, I'd read shadow as light. I would say like Calvin says earlier that the sacrifices and all this is meant to make our minds ascend to a higher contemplation. I would yeah, read it that way. I mean, historically it's interesting, but. No, but he's he's railing against a view that sees the old, the people of the old covenant, the ceremonies, as purely for that period, and having no uh, heavenly significance. Right? They're all all about um, the the land, the, the the sacrificial system, and those kinds of things. Um, but they don't actually point to anything eternal. And he's like he's railing against that the whole the whole way through. Mm -hmm. um, and that that spiritual significance comes because of Christ. I like how, uh, where did I see this? He has a, another summary statement um, that was really helpful on 458 uh, near the, uh, so it's in section nine. We're talking about the, the bondage of the Old Testament, the freedom of the new, and he locates it in joy, like a, a contrast between fear and joy. So that kind of like that, that middle paragraph there, uh, after quoting Galatians 4, he says, just to sum up, the Old Testament struck consciences with fear and trembling uh, but by the benefit of the new, they are released into joy. Uh, the old held conscience is bound by the yoke of bondage. The new, by its spirit of liberality, emanci emancipates them mm. to freedom. 
Man, that's so, awesome. So we can now read the, the law for spiritual gain today and joy and not afraid of its uh, consequences, not afraid yeah. of the fearful condemnation because that's been forgiven. Um, yeah. As we move on, I think it's useful going to uh, chapter 12 and section one, which is page 464 in the ba- McNeil edition. Battles, right? Battles. Yep, yep. Um, and there's, there's a bit of a thing that he gets into. He uses language like absolute freedom and decree, absolute necessity and decree. Yep. Um, I, I just think it's useful to note that for Calvin, and we can kind of read the, two, the sentence here. Calvin seems to say this, that God could have created and saved us in any way that he wanted. But he chose to do so on the basis of his decree to send the son into the world to die for us. Yep. It's not absolutely necessary that Jesus did this in terms of God could have done anything. But because of the decree that God made, his kind of simple decree, this is the way in which history has worked out. And therefore, yep. that's the way it is. Um, I only bring that up because, as we noted earlier, like some people have a different view on that today. And it basically says this is the only possible way that things could have happened given who God is in terms of his justice and so on. Yeah. Um, in my view, I think Calvin probably gets it right. I think restraining God's capability to affect salvation on the basis of his nature is maybe reading too much into our analogical ability to understand him and his decree and his, his will. Do you have any thought on that or should we just move on fast? I just yeah, wanted to I know mean, those there. He, he, he locates a lot of this stuff even just before that in uh, in eleven thirteen he starts talking about and defending God's you know immutability as it were uh, so he's he's really mm. concerned about some of the challenges that are coming to to the doctrine of God right there in thirteen uh, where he says that you know God ought not to be considered changeable merely because he accommodated diverse forms to different ages so just because there's an old and new testament that doesn't you know because there's a change there that doesn't imply that there's any kind of change. In God, he gives that illustration of the farmer there um, right after that. So he's talking about doctrine of God. That leads into then that, tw- that 12, uh, 1 and 2. Um, and yeah, he's using this language that, you know, we know from like kind of the history of philosophy or theology is what we call voluntaristic language. So when you're thinking either of the human faculties or you're thinking of God, um, you either have, you're either an intellectualist or a voluntarist. And um, the, the intellectualist tradition is going to be more Calvinistic. And the voluntarist is going to be more scotist if you want to i mean i realize there's huge debates going on and all in the background of all that uh and so he talks about you know he says if somebody asks why this is necessary there has been no simple or absolute uh necessity rather it stemmed from a heavenly decree on which men's salvation depended which is what you're talking about uh and so god's god's decree has the absolute power to do you know god has the absolute power through his decree to do as he pleases if he wants to do it this way he totally can and I don't, I think, I think there is probably some of that SCOTUS tradition back there. Um, he doesn't push things to like the absurdities that sometimes that gets accused of like, uh, you know, could God command you to disobey him? <laughs> you know, like those sorts of voluntarist type statements, but it's definitely there in him. And I think it's, I think it's there in aspects of the, of the tradition. Yeah. I think uh, that is something that a lot of people see in Calvin, not necessarily in all the reformed or even second or third generation reformers, but Yo. it's something that's at least present in his way of thinking based on his context in history. I think you probably see it there in Luther as well. Right. I mean, Luther's trained yeah. up by Gabriel Beale, right. who was a guy that was a, uh, 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 an Occamite, Occamite maybe, or same, yep. same idea, I guess. Yeah. So, um, um, 
Well, as, as we, we can keep moving, that's just an interesting point to kind of bring out. And yeah. there's, there's a rich diversity in the Reformed tradition in many ways. So this is one of the pieces of diversity. I wanted to note, we don't have to dwell on that, dwell on this, but Calvin actually uses a phrase to describe salvation that is everywhere present in the fathers, or maybe everywhere is too much of extreme, but it's very common in the fathers. So in 12.2, he makes this point in the second yeah. sentence. Who could have done this had not this self same son of God become the son of man and had not so taken what was ours as to impart what was his to us and to make what was his by nature ours by grace. Yeah. Um, a little bit below that after um, Ephesians 5, 29, 31 is, is uh, cited or referenced ungrudgingly. He took our nature upon himself to impart to us what he, uh, what, what was his. In other words, the point is what Christ is by nature, a son, with all the benefits and all the things that he earned and merited in this life, we gain by grace, the grace yeah. of adoption. And we're viewed as sons and brothers to Jesus. He's not ashamed to call us his brother. And we have the same father, the father in heaven. But that means by becoming what we were uh, and by trusting him and uniting to him, we gain by grace what is his by nature, sonship and all yeah. that implies. Uh, that's just a very common way to describe salvation throughout church history. And Calvin makes good use of it. In fact, that's part of the logic of the section we're reading right now. Maybe most of the logic, but at least part. Yeah. I mean, it's so that, that plays into this kind of debate um, that happens, especially between like Eastern Orthodox thinkers that care about Protestant thought is, is there a theosis language here in Calvin, you know, and like, He's definitely reading the fathers. We know that he's very indebted um, to, to them. And uh, he, you know, I think that, that he likes the Cappadocians. Mm. And so that kind of language, which in the Eastern tradition would, would be an undergirding of theosis. Could it be the case that that's maybe here? It's a huge debate. Um, I see it as we were talking about before, I kind of see, you know, he's talking about son of God, son of man, um, so, you know, that, that quote that you gave, he's both, both of these in common with us. And so it seems like less of us moving to him in theosis and him moving down to us. And then he says, hence that holy brotherhood, which he commends with his own lips when he says, I'm ascending. Well, no, he's got a sent language. But then he says, in this way, we are assured of the inheritance of the heavenly kingdom. So his sonship tied up with inheritance and is that mm -hmm. is he taking on our nature so that we could become sons of his physical body so that we get the inheritance. And right. is that what's, so he's proper to him is to be a son. He takes on human flesh. We come in union with him and now we are sons too. Therefore we are inheritors yeah. just like the firstborn is. And, and a lot of this so. gets clarified. Like I think it's in Zanchi where he says, look, when Christ ascends, by the spirit, we, we unite to the flesh of Christ in heaven and we gain yeah. those, those spiritual benefits. So I think, Cal I think Calvin is at least using traditional language, patristic language to describe yeah. salvation, whether or not the entire notions that he has behind it correlate to say uh, the Cappadocians. It's unclear, but I think there's something to it. It'd be interesting to go. So I have it at my office at the, at the school, but, um, Tony Lane's book on Calvin and the Church Fathers. Okay. He's probably got something in there. It would probably be worth looking at. I like his use, though. I don't know if you caught this or not. His use on 466 under number three of Anselm. Um, oh. Yeah, he, he uses, um, let's see, where is it? He satisfaction talks, language. He talks about satisfaction, right? So he, uh, so like from Cordeus Homo. So he says, the second requirement of our reconciliation with God was this. 
that man who by his disobedience to become lost should by way of remedy counter it with obedience, satisfy God's judgment. So he uses satisfaction language there and penal substitution language when he's using and pay the penalties for sin, which Anselm doesn't go that far with necessarily. But um, I thought that was also kind of interesting um, mm. using that kind of satisfaction language, which is very, very important. Yes. Again, right. Uh, he, says, he says that uh, accordingly, our Lord came forth as true man and took the person and the name of Adam in order to take Adam's place in obeying the father uh, to present our flesh as the price of satisfaction to God's righteous judgment. And in the same flesh to pay the penalty that we deserve. <laughs> so he's saying it twice in repetition. Um, well, it is, well, it is worth noting that Calvin here, and I think probably throughout associates penal substitution with satisfaction. And sometimes it's like good to just be really basic. Satisfaction is look, you owe something to someone, a debt, you go to the king or the lord of the land and he makes satisfaction by giving the equivalent sum of money, like in, in a product or the money itself, you yep. satisfy whatever the debt is that you have. In this case, the debt is, is, is death. Sin yep. leads to death. But Calvin... Um, and it, but it's also like the idea too, right? That like you're the satisfaction. So if I, if I um, you know, say I'm walking down a, a medieval street and I happen to kick mud on a, on a woman's dress, but she's a peasant. I'll have to make restitution, you know, to get that clean. If I do it to a queen's dress, mm. right? The, the satisfaction that has to be paid has to meet the value of the person's right. office who I've just sullied. And then sometimes I got to pay even more. Mm. Um, now we've infinitely offended an infinitely holy God. What kind of satisfaction can be paid, you know? And so, um, so it has to be this, as he's, he's arguing all the way through, which he's, he's got reminiscences, right. I think, of on the incarnation by Athanasius here too this whole chapter is on mediatorship. And so mm. Christ is the one who has to do this between us and God. God's angry. We've right. offended his holiness and that needs to be satisfied. Well, if you accidentally killed the king's horse, he'll be angry at you until you make restitution satisfaction. I, yeah. I think that's the, the basic idea here. Although Calvin will later say, and we'll get to it, that never at any time was God angry with the son. Yeah. Anyways, we'll get to that. That's probably too much. Um, One thing to jump into really quick is on page... um. What do I have? It's, it's 13 one. So, okay. Page 475. I just kind of building on some of the things we said, the bottom of 475 at the very, the very last sentence, so this is chapter 13, section one. Yep. I, I still think that some of this is very beautiful language of Kelvin. He says here, what we touched on a little while ago pertains to the same point. The sins of the world had to be expiated in our flesh. As Paul clearly declares Romans eight three. Surely for this reason, whatever the Father bestowed upon Christ pertains to us because he is the head from whom the whole body knit together through joints grows into one. And then the very last sentence, he quotes John 17, for their sake, I sanctify himself. For, for Calvin, it seems really important, this, this, this uh, unity of bodyhood. Christ what page is on? Sorry, I didn't catch it. Uh, bottom of 475, spilling into 476. Oh, okay, okay, that's why. So section one of chapter 13. Yeah. For Calvin, the idea of union into one body, the benefits of the head come down and uh, kind of spill over into us. And where I think you see this um, maybe clarifies more explicitly is in chapter 15 and really in uh, section two. And I guess you would say uh, it's 496. He says it all over, I guess, but I'll just kind of read a couple sentences. And I think this is something that Rowan Williams really focuses on, but I think he's right, kind of gives some of the logic here. 
Um, so really about halfway down this page, near the top a bit more than that. You have this, uh, he you know, quotes Isaiah 61, Luke 4, and then he goes on to say after that, um, on the other hand, we must note this. He received anointing, not only for himself, so the anointing of the Spirit, that he yeah. might carry out the office of teaching, but for his whole body, that the power of the Spirit might be present in the continuing preaching of the gospel. Go down a little bit more to after he quotes Matthew 17 and 3 there is referenced. Then he says, Then this anointing was diffused from the head to the members, as Joel yeah. has foretold. Now, he doesn't say it here, and I can't remember the exact reference. Uh, it's in this area. I think it might even be in the previous page. That Christ has given the Spirit beyond measure. Why beyond measure? Yeah. It's so that he can give it to the members of his body. Yeah. Uh, it might even be the previous page. I'm just, uh, I, I need to look afterwards to double check the exact reference. But it's in this, in this section too. Oh, sorry. I found it. Page 500. This is really important. Let's just read it. Um, 15, 5, but on page 500. He did not, this is at the very top. As has already been said, he did not enrich himself for his own sake, but that he might pour out his abundance upon the hungry and thirsty. Skip a sentence, the next one. From this fountain flows that abundance of which Paul speaks. Grace was given to each believer according to the measure of Christ's gift, and so on. Um, so uh, this is kind of all in connection to the, um, the spirit being given to him. Yeah, it's, it's part of his messianic anointing, mm. right? Uh, which happens, he says, right after that, the visible symbol of the sacred anointing is his baptism when the spirit comes down on him. And, uh, and this is all part of his, like, his, his offices here. The, the first one you were reading from on 496, that's his okay. office as prophet, right? His prophetic office. And then the one that you just read, as far as I can see, that's his kingly, kingly. office, you know, yeah. that, the, the, the Munich's triplex, as we describe it, Munich's triplex is the threefold office that constitutes his mediatorship, prophet, priest, and king. Um, so it's interesting, you know, how, how the spirit um, suffuses all of that, and then the, the overflow is, is to us. And that, that's a way to think about salvation, because I think a lot of us think, okay, we get forgiven, great. Yeah. Uh, but Calvin is, of course you get forgiven, but that's the access to life. There's no vigor yeah. except for the vigor of the Holy Spirit he gets at here. And Christ has an overflow of the Spirit, John 3.34, for the sake of us, so that by union with our head, who is Christ, we get the overflow of all the prophetic anointing, so that the Spirit is ours without measure as well. Or at least yeah. it's measured out to us. Um, it's hugely it's really weird though is that if you if you read if you read from 501 to 503 that whole section on his priesthood is obviously and rightly so heavily leaning on hebrews again uh no mention of the spirit there though yeah that's that is odd isn't it i wonder if it's because uh you know because he's talking about him, christ as the everlasting intercessor and yet the, the spirit we know also intercedes as well um, and so I wonder if that's the case because the, the offices get separated, you know, and the, the priesthood's yeah. unique to Christ there. I don't know. Well, he does talk about the anointing. He might just be assuming anointing is yeah. the spirit. I, I think that this is pervasive. I don't think it's, I don't think he's quite thinking the three roles. Like, is it very, I think he's just right. saying spirit without measure is in Christ for the, the members of the body. Yeah. And so I, I think you might have it implied here, but none, even if you don't, nonetheless, I think it's massively important that Calvin's uh, view of salvation is, is really summed up by union with Christ. 
yeah. in which forgiveness and all the benefit, the double, the forgiveness of sins and all that stuff happens to us. What our head gains uh, and, and merits by, by nature and by, by activity, we gain by grace and adoption. Yeah. Which is, I think, hugely important, but also helps us to conceive of the Christian life, at least for me. If I just think of myself as forgiven and waiting for heaven, then life kind of loses its vigor. But if I'm forgiven and growing deeper and deeper into life itself, then life is much more exciting and, and is, we're pursuing something, we're pursuing life and joy. Yeah. It's um, cool how he, how he gets on at the bottom of 502, the priesthood of believers uh, sort of stuff, like right after mm. that Revelation 1-6 quote, he says, we who are defiled are in ourselves, yet are priests in him, uh, because we're in Christ, we're priests, because he's the high priest, and uh, offer ourselves and our all to God and freely enter the heavenly sanctuary, that the sacrifices of prayers and praise that we may bring may be acceptable and sweet smelling before God. And he says, this is the meaning of Christ's statement in John 17, for their sake I sanctify myself. Right? So why is he going to sanctify himself? He's doing it for our sake, which is another one of those outward things for us. For we imbued with, this, with his holiness insofar as he has consecrated us to the Father with himself, although we would not otherwise be loathsome to him, or we would otherwise be loathsome to him, uh, please him as pure and clean and even as holy. So mm -hmm. we get to be priests. The priesthood of believers is grounded in the fact that we're in Christ who has sanctified himself as the proper high priest. And so we can enter into the Holy of Holies because we actually have his holiness. And, uh, and so we don't have reason to fear, which explain, which goes back to what he was saying mm -hmm. before Good. when he was saying how the old, you're under this fear and trembling. Now you have this joy and this freedom of the new covenant. Well, I think um, as we kind of wind down here, I, I just wanted to reaffirm that uh, we won't have to cover it, but he does affirm eternal generation of the sun yep. and also Chalcedonian Christology. So Chalcedonian Christology is that there's two natures in one person. Yep. In that one person is where the communication of the idioms, the two natures happens. Kevin doesn't say that explicitly, but he, he mentions all those points. I'm not sure why he doesn't say that explicitly, but he mentions communication of idioms, two natures, one person. Yeah. Um, he, at least that I remember seeing. Eternal generation just means that the son was eternally begotten of the father before all time. So he's always been the son. He's the eternal word of God. Yeah. And um, this is the way to understand how the father and son are different from one another yet the same. Yeah. So I don't yeah, know. It boggles my mind when somebody denies eternal generation. So it's like, so are you saying that the father in the, in the Godhead has, there was a time when he wasn't the father and the son wasn't the son. What happened uh, that made that happen? Is it the incarnation that makes that happen? So did you God know, change? Yeah, does God change then? It's like, no, he, the Father is eternally the Father, and the Son is eternally the Son, <laughs> you know, and Spirit as well, eternally the Spirit. So, Well, it's kind of going I, back to what you said about the Aristotelian language. It's like, it, these are just words to describe what is, and eternal generation, generation means to um, have like a child, essentially. Yeah. All you're saying is eternal sonship, but the Father eternally ascending the Son. There's yeah. never been a time where the Son and the Father had a different relationship. Yeah, and it's they have a relationship of we just describe it as a relationship of origin, right? The, origin. the son, father is the way we could say is like the ground of the being of the Godhead, and the son and the spirit both relate in terms of an eternal origin uh, back to the father. And well, as Western theologians, the spirit through the father and the son. Yeah. Yay, filioque. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up at the end because that that will be obviously clear to everyone. But we'll, we'll find time to talk about that at one point. I'm sure. I think. Yep. Uh, probably in book three. I don't remember, or I don't know if he gets into it. Um, so, uh, so that's the end for today. Next week, we're going to finish the last two chapters, 16 and 17 of book two, and then we're done book two. Crazy. Book two down, man.
and then we'll jump into book three and then uh four is one is funny i've never really felt like i have a, a good grasp on it so i guess it's i love time book right. four so good all this stuff on the church yeah it's okay. so good for whatever reason just when i've read in the past i've never spent enough time meditating on that so i'll be learning so that'll be good um well thank you for uh, ian we'll see you next week yep sounds good man see you